Welcome to the world of Aeora, a news and lore podcast about the Pillars of Eternity games, as well as Obsidian Entertainment's upcoming release, Avowed. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the World of Aeora. I'm your host Eric aka Gingerino. Thank you guys so much for joining me as we dive into the history, lore, and gang mechanics of Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 as we gear up for the release of Avowed. For those wondering why we pair all of those games together, it's because they share the same fantasy setting called Aeora. Aeora is the fantasy setting for Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 and Avowed upcoming. And so as the theory goes, as we look into the history, lore, and game mechanics of Pillars of Eternity, we can glean insights as Avowed undergoes development, as well it lets those of us who are huge geeks about this world and about these games to just learn something new and dive into the lore. Happy Spooktober, everybody! It's October, and everybody in the podcasting world is getting their spooky hats on and talking about spooky things. Um, and I'm, I've am i sort of accidentally committed myself to doing a series of episodes about Pillars of Eternity factions, so might not be super spooky. Although, I will be talking about a druidic cult today that have to do with ritual blood sacrifices, you know? So there you go. That's kind of spooky, scary skeletons in, the, in, in its own sort of way, depending on your tastes, I suppose. No uh, news today to go over regarding Pillars of Eternity or Avowed. We're going to dive into today's episode, which is going to be kind of a continuation of the last episode where I talked about political or religious factions that exist within the city of Defiance Bay, the major city in Pillars of Eternity 1. And there's another major city in Pillars of Eternity 1 called Twin Elms. Inside this region of the Twin Elms are a number of factions as well. There are six local tribes that make up the main um, government, I suppose you could say, in Twin Elms. And then there's a couple of druidic orders that I want to bring your attention to that you're going to want to hear about. Um, that's probably all I'll get through today. And then in the next episode, I hope to get through all of the extra factions that we read about in the Pillars of Eternity 2 guidebook, which I just got a hard copy of uh, through Amazon. If any of you are huge Pillars of Eternity nerds out there, and you like having like physical things to collect, I got Pillars of Eternity 2 guidebook on Amazon for relatively cheap, and there's still several copies left, so jump on there and look for that. Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire guidebook is what you're looking for. The hard copy from Dark Horse Publishing. So, with that said, let's um, put our spooky hats on and not talk about spooky things very much, <laughs> and get into today's lore. I'm curious. What exactly did you find there? So as mentioned, this episode's mainly going to comprise of information on Twin Elms and some of the factions that we see in there. I'm getting most of my information, if not all of it, from the Pillars of Eternity Collector's Books. This is the first edition of the Collector's Book that has all the lore of it. You can also find this one on Amazon, although it's like three times more expensive than the second version. So, you know, if you have the money, go for it. A little blurb on Twin, El Twin Elms before we get started. Uh, this is the city of Glonfathen tribes. Uh, Glonfathen tribes are the tribes of the nation of Air Glonfath. You know, go figure. Uh, Air Glonfath are a set of tribes that natively exist in this area of the world known as the Eastern Reach, which is a new continent. So in the history of Eora, there are three major superpowers, and they were exploring and expanding in the world. 
eventually they discovered this new land, this new continent, which they called the Eastern Reach, and one of those major powers, the Adir, have settled there. And we've talked about this before, and so we have these Adiran colonists settling in the continent of the Eastern Reach. They are called Deer Woodens. But the Deer Woodens found out that there were people already living on this continent, and these were the Air Glonfathen tribes. And so when I talk about Glonfathens, that's who I'm talking about. This city, Twin Elms, was established between a pair of ancient elm trees, a location chose for its proximity to the gods of Eora. And actually, if you play Pillars of Eternity 1, uh, you do come to this location and you do get to these kind of these two twin elms, you know, these two elm trees, and you talk to a, a pair of Delamgon sisters, I believe, ancient beings with ancient knowledge. And uh, it's a it's a very big moment in the narrative of Pillars of Eternity 1. Oldest amongst its structures, which is uh, you know, structures within the city of Twin Elms, is a stone tower known as Ter Evron, which is local language for the Hall of Stars. The pinnacle of the tower is used for astrology and divine communication. Uh, so this, uh, this tower where you can commune with the gods is a very special location within Pillars of Eternity 1. When you go in here, there are bookshelves upon bookshelves upon bookshelves of different lore, each one containing kind of the scripture for a different god. So if you're really big into the lore and you get to Ter Evron, the Hall of Stars, go to the bookshelves and pick up a copy of each of the book that's in there, and you're essentially you're holding the scripture of each of the gods there. And actually, I think you need to read those books in order to solve a puzzle, which if you don't like reading, it's kind of a really annoying puzzle, but you could also just brute force your way through all the dialogue options and eventually you'll get somewhere. Or look it up, I suppose. Reminiscent of Audra Stones, the elm trees, that is the twin elms that are iconic in this city, the elm trees exhibit a tendency towards attracting souls that are twinned in some way, whether they were once halves of the same whole or interacted in some past of which mortals are unaware. So this is important to note because in this world of Aeora, souls and soul energy, which is called essence, the stuff that souls is made of, is a very important part of the lore. And it's not just the living, breathing creatures that have consciousness, that have souls, or that have essence. Uh, the very plants and trees of the forests themselves have essence. And so I, I don't know if they have like conscious souls necessarily. Maybe they do. And it seems that these two trees in particular attract souls that are twinned in some way, shape, or form, which in my mind makes it related to Bereth, who I believe is the twinned god, he, she, it, thing, um, is kind of the god of duality in a lot of ways. There are two sides to Bereth all, at all times that exist at the same time. And so this seems very Bereth-esque, in my opinion. A pair of Delamgon sisters attend to the trees, a, a vigil that predates the city itself. Delamgon are a type of creature. They're kind of like humanoid forest creatures it's almost like the forest created little wooden humanoid versions of themselves to be kind of like their vessel and you're kind of talking to the forest directly in a weird sort of way delamgon have an interesting lore behind them but these two delamgon sisters that live in these twin trees and they uh attend these trees as a vigil that predates the city itself and twin elms is also built around the major and within ruin here which has not been plundered, plundered by adventurers. And that's, a, that's an important thing because the Deerwood and colonists that I mentioned earlier, they got in a lot of wars with the Glonfathens because they kept going into their sacred Glonfathen uh, sites, the Ingwithin Ruins. But there's this one Ingwithin Ruin at Twin Elms that they have not yet plundered, you know, basically because it's at the heart of their entire culture and civilization. These Glonfathen tribes have 
different, you know, as, as the name kind of suggests, different tribes that make up their society. And in Pillars of Eternity 1, we're privy to six main tribes that form their government. These six Glonfathen tribes that are responsible for governing the city are the Keepers of the Stone, Stone Bramble, Fisher Crane, Three Tusk Stalgar, a Stalgar is a type of creature, the Guided Compass, and Twice Split Arrows. So these are the main six. Now, theoretically, there are more than just these six tribes that could exist out there, um, but they might be fringe tribes, they might not be part of the main um, society of Air Glonfoth, or they just might be so um, small that they aren't mentioned, or you know, nobody at Obsidian came up with anything else. So we got these six. And we're going to talk a little bit about each of those six before we move into the druidic orders that we see. So first up are Keepers of the Stone. The Keepers consider themselves the oldest tribe of Glanfathans, claiming also to be the first to make contact with the Ingwithans. To this day, they guard an Audra stone remembered as a token of friendship, gifted from their patrons. As such, they ascribe a great deal of importance to historical record and documentation. These claims are contested, but lack of proof to support a counterpoint. The Keepers have passed down the oldest stories of their culture, including accounts of the original seafaring expedition that landed them on Air Glanfath long ago. Even though their numbers are geographically spread out, Keepers marry within their tribe and show reluctance to engage with outsiders under any circumstances. So we get a pretty decent feel for what this tribe is like, the Keepers of the Stone. They're very big on record-keeping, it sounds like, and so in that sense they worship, I would say, the goddess Woodica who is a, a little bit more bureaucratic, I think. And it's interesting that they even talk about how they actually made contact with the Ingwithans. I, I don't want to get too much into the spoilers of the lore for the history of the Ingwithans, because, you know, ancient civilizations tend to be tied to the main meta-narrative of these games. Uh, but that's a, that's a pretty interesting detail, and it kind of gives a hint as to the age of this tribe and the importance that their tribe may have played in the history of the world. Uh, and the fact that they could even have accounts of their original expedition that got this tribe to be on this continent in the first place is also very important. Especially if you play Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire, uh, you learn about major world factions in the ancient world of Aeora. And this is a particularly no notable event in history that they would have landed here. The Keepers seem to be a good resource, however, if you are wanting to learn more about the culture of Erglanfoth, because it says here they passed down the oldest stories of their culture, including accounts of the original seafaring expedition. So these guys are kind of keeping their culture going. They are keeping the knowledge of their people alive. Next up is Stone Bramble. Perhaps the most implacable and intimidating of the Glanfathen tribes, the Stone Bramble hail from White March, which is a mountainous region kind of to the northeast, covered in snow. That's called the White March. Naming themselves after a hardy bush that grows in the mountains, the Stone Bramble Bush. They see tribalism as a formality that keeps fighters and warlords in check. Any further use for society is an indulgence they have no wish to comprehend. In spite of their harsh outlook and their harsher land they settle, they have an inflated sense of self-importance in relation to the rest of the world. Their histories conflict with the Keepers in that they believe themselves favored by the Ingwithans. So the Stone Bramble actually take a very interesting approach to society. In their view, tribalism is very good, or at least it can be used as a good. And I would say that, for, at least for people like myself, uh, in my neck of the woods, in my region of the world, we tend to look at tribalism as very bad. We tend to look at this idea of making an us versus them mentality as not a very good thing. It leads to a lot of strife between people, a lot of hatred um, and vitriol and bigotry. 
I think that's what someone like me would say. But what the people in Stone Bramble say is that it keeps the leaders and warlords in check. You know, essentially, it for it doesn't let one person get too powerful because this group thinks that this group, other group, is not very good, and so they are constantly warring with each other in that way that no one gets too powerful. Everyone kind of stays leveled with each other. It's almost like a level of accountability, but you know, without agreeing to it in the first place. I can kind of see what they're getting at. I think that there is a virtue behind accountability. I think there is a virtue behind wanting to hold other people responsible for doing good or bad things. I don't think, however, that tribalism is the answer for that. Um, being a gamer myself, I'm sure a lot of us see a lot of examples of console wars on the internet, and I don't know about you, I think that's stupid. I think that uh, if someone genuinely judges and demeans your gaming experience because you play on PlayStation versus PC or Xbox or Nintendo, that it's a stupid thing to judge people over. Uh, but in a sense, the Stone Bramble would say, hey, it makes your platform stronger. They, if they have to vie for the attention of the consumer, if they have to be like, we are better than these other people, and they kind of promote this competitive spirit, this like hostile spirit even, that it would they would try even harder to make better products. And there's something to say about that. Like, let's say Sony and Microsoft themselves went full bore into the console wars and just like constantly took a dump on each other's products and were constantly uplifting their own products. They would have to back it up by actually making quality product. So in a sense, they're right. But that being said, I still don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a lot better to just make good stuff just to make good stuff because you the passion of making something in the first place. But yeah, so that's a stone bramble. Next is Fisher Crane. In many ways, the Fisher Crane are the most overlooked and underestimated Gladenfathen tribe, which is very likely their objective. Named after the bird who stalks with motionless patience, the Fisher Crane have a knack for subtlety when it comes to their cleverness. Outsiders, even among the Glanfathans, see the tribe skulking among bogs or half-sunken ruins, and think the hermit-like figures as soft as the moss decorating their armor. Outward aggression is rare, but not for lack of skill. Fisher Crane warriors are more apt to sabotage siege weaponry or stage elaborate ambushes than engage in open combat. Some of their oldest tales speak of ancient battles where other side never knew the enemy. They guard and within ruins that are most submerged in swamps or so overgrown by local flora that other tribes have lost track of their location. Though the Fisher Crane make fewer claims about their tribe's history, it's likely that they keep more of it secret than they let on. So the Fisher Crane seem to be kind of like the rogue tribe in the sense that they're, you know, in the shadows. They are kind of quiet and in the swamps and uh, not really a lot of people know much about them. And it seems to be that's what they like. I like this flavor for the tribes. I think this is good for different role playing if you are role playing a character that comes from something like this. I, and I think it really speaks as well too to the type of combat that you can engage with with different Glanvathan tribes. Fisher Cranes, you know, they're not going to be like other tribes who just walk up and start engaging in noble honorable combat face to face you and me one-on-one -on -one, you know and they're they're more like okay let's set up our entire group hidden in the shadows or high up in the trees set an ambush set some traps and like let's take these people out before they even know that we're there and so that's who you're dealing with there i'm wondering if they have a lot of esoteric knowledge about the history of their people I'm wondering if they have explored some within ruins that hold ancient secrets that people aren't even aware of. So I wonder what secrets the Fisher Crane tribe holds. Next up is Three Tusk Stalgar. Uh, and before I continue on, I'll say what the Stalgar is. is Essentially, it's like a, an Aeoran saber-toothed tiger, really. 
a very long tail. It's got some weird stripey coloration to their fur. Long saber tooth teeth in the front. Massive claws. Um, it has like a spine of hair going down its back, kind of like a you know a punk rocker. <laughs> so he's like the Stalgare is the punk rocker cat of the cat world for sure. But anyways, it's a ferocious cat creature. For those who just want the bottom line of what it is. And this is called the Three Tusk Stalgar. So that would be a, a Stalgar that doesn't just have the two saber-toothed tusks. There would be a third one there. That's what they're referencing. While the Stone Bramble may be the most intimidating tribe, the Three Tusk Stalgar are the deadliest. Their warriors ride giant Stalgar's cats into battle. This is a testament to their feral nature, as the cats will brutally kill any other Glanfathen within reach of their claws. During the major conflicts with the Deerwood, the Stalgare were the primary aggressors who punished colonists for infractions on Anguithin ruins. Their brutality surprised the other tribes, but their fearlessness and commitment won them a great deal of support. During the War of Black Trees, which is a war I'll talk about once I'm done this paragraph, a split formed in the Stalgare ranks. Some fighters wanted to dig in and battle Adirin forces to the death, while others fled to the relative safety of Erglonfoth. Those who fled ultimately joined other tribes leaving the Stalgare in the hands of its wildest and most chaotic fighters. These days, they are grudgingly respected by the rest of the Glanfathen tribes and feared by the Deerwoodens who travel off the established roads. Say, so the Three Tusk Stalgare, that's the tribe we're dealing with here. Definitely the deadliest. They're the most ferocious. And in fact, they were made even more ferocious when the lukewarm Stalgares left after the War of Black Trees. And so now all you have are the extremists, the fanatics that are in charge of this entire tribe. These guys are so fierce that they basically ride saber-toothed tigers <laughs> into battle, and no one else can do that. And these these cats are ferocious and territorial. Like the people in these tribes hunt these things as a as like a milestone or as like a way to prove your worth as a hunter. Like if you can take down a stalgare, you are a noteworthy hunter. And yet these people are just like, yeah, we ride them for fun. You know, we ride them into battle. It's not a big deal. So yeah, and I mentioned mentioned I would bring up the War of Black Trees. Uh, War of Black Trees is one of the wars that existed between the Deerwooden colonists and the Glanfathen tribes. It's called War of the Black Trees because of the tactic that the Deerwooden general employed. Essentially, when all of the Glanfathens were retreating from a battle, he s just scorched the forest and completely killed anybody that was inside the forest. And so they weren't able to flee. They weren't really able to go anywhere. He just decimated the armies by doing that. And so as a result, a lot of these Three Tusk Stalgare were like, okay, well, let's go home. This is clearly too much for us to handle. And then a bunch of extremists were like, nah, -uh, we are going to dig in and we're going to fight these Adirans to the death. And so, yeah, that's what happened with then. You don't want to mess with a Three Tusk Stalgare. <laughs> this would definitely be one of the mid to late game people that you would fight if you were kind of going in sequential order of most badass people to fight in the world. Um, not a lot of history to them, not a lot of intrigue and stuff like that, just ferocity. The Guided Compass. Although the Guided Compass are known for their accepting and pacifistic nature, they are nevertheless viewed as the eccentric upstarts in Glanfathen society. Some of this can be attributed to their being a relatively young tribe, cut off from a sense of greater history or belonging. The Guided Compass take a more objective view of their place in Air Glanfath, as opposed to falling back on tradition. The tribe fought in none of the Deerwooden conflicts, accepting early on that the Adirans had arrived to stay. The Guided Compass even theorized that the Deerwooden colony might prove a new ally in the protection of sacred sites. Their lack of involvement in the war earned them the mocking epithet of the Broken Compass in Glanfathen circles. While their alliance, which some would call complacency, 
with Deerwood, has yet to benefit in the ways they imagine, the guided compass optimistically believe that they still have much to learn from the settlers. So there you have it. If uh, Keepers of the Stone were team status quo or team conservative, the guided compass is a little more team liberal. You know, they're the other side of the thing. They have not participated in any of the wars or any of the conflicts. They don't root their identity in the ancient history of their tribes or their traditions. They're more about who are we now? Where are we going forward? What what can we do with uh, what we currently have? And there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about both sides, right? Like, it's important to look at the tradition of your culture and the traditions of your people and the history. It's important to hold on to things that are good from your past and not to carry the negative things forward. But it's also good to not just stagnate in the past and where you are at now. It's important to ask, okay, where are we and where are we going? And it seems like um, the guided compass is, in my opinion, making a good decision to kind of say, okay, these deer wooden um, colonists are here to stay. How can we make this a beneficial relationship? Like we can't get rid of them. So what are we going to do? Let's find a way to live with them amicably, with them peacefully. Whereas I think some other tribes are thinking, no, these people shouldn't be here, so we need to eliminate them. Um, and I understand both sides of it. If it's an invading group of people, you want to get rid of them, right? Um, if they're like destroying your ways or they're killing your people or enslaving your people, which actually did happen. You know, you fight back and that's normal. A guided compass, obviously, they didn't go through any of that. And that's an important thing to note too, right? Like they weren't here, they weren't part of the, all this conflict when, you know, their brothers and sons and daughters were being taken as slaves. They weren't here for that. And, and so that's partly why they're able to kind of move forward thinking, well, let's be friends with these people. And as you can imagine, since they're relatively new and a lot of the more status quo tribes are still in power, they're not favorably looked at i mean people call them the broken compass and not even the guided compass because they think that their their moral compass is broken you see what they did there you see what obsidian did there that's very very clever so yeah that's the guided compass the last glonfathen tribe is twice split arrows this smaller tribe is technically an amalgamation of the others as it comprises the outcasts and the hermits considered unwelcome while their brethren view them as scavengers with no sense of heritage or history, the twice-split arrows consider themselves dogged survivors who will ultimately outlast the downfall of greater powers and grow stronger for their endurance. As opposed to having a structure of leadership set in stone, the tribe will follow whatever measures are most practical and ungrounded from meaningless tradition. There you go, twice-split arrows. So it sounds like Obsidian made five tribes and they're like, what about other people that fall into different categories but aren't really worth making an entire tribe for? Ah, we'll just throw them in the twice split arrows. We'll just make them the outsiders. So there you go. I don't know who an obsidian sounds like that, but there you go. Small tribe, twice split arrows. I think this, uh, the twice split is referring to like, not just split once, but twice. And so like that like fringe of the fringe of these tribes are just kind of getting together and making their own sort of tribe. It's kind of the place where everyone else kind of goes. They seem to be driven by a sense of pragmatism of like, okay, well, what works? Like, they're going to follow a leader that is the most practical and ungrounded from meaningless tradition. So it sounds like they just work on what's pragmatic, but they also just, they recognize things for what they are in the sense of like, we think that this tradition is meaningless. And when I say recognize them for what they are, I mean like, they don't do ritualistic things with their tradition, perhaps. Um, which isn't, in my opinion, meaningless, but I, I also understand where people might be coming from and saying that like, there's no there's no point in doing ritualistic things empty-minded or empty-hearted. And maybe that's what some of these twice-split-arrow people think, that these are meaningless traditions in the sense of there's no real content 
or heart in some of these things, and so they don't do that. They just sort of exist. They survive. They do what's pragmatic, and they will survive and outlast all the other tribes as a result. At least that's what they believe. Out of all of them, I don't know which one I would belong to personally. I might belong to the Twice Splitter House, actually, because I've, I've always kind of been in that, as they put it, outcast and hermist group. And that's not me being down myself. Like, I've just always kind of been that way. Like, it, growing up in school, like, was, I always hung out with the fringe kids and even going to university and in workplace. I always find myself kind of gravitating towards the group that's on the edge. Um, and I don't know why. You know, I'm just like that. Otherwise, I might pick the Guided Compass because I haven't really grown up in a lot of hard circumstances like previous generations before me. And I do tend to think, well, how can we just all get along and move forward amicably and actually benefit each other and grow as a result? I, I tend to be a little bit more like that. I do sympathize with other ones. Maybe not the Three Tusk Stalgar uh, as much, but I do sympathize where a lot of these other tribes are coming from. But those would be the ones I, I kind of gravitate towards. What about you? Out of all the six tribes in Erglonfoth that are listed here, which one do you think you would belong to personally? Send me an email, worldofaora at gmail.com or Twitter at worldofaora. And just to close off this one section where we're talking about tribes, there is a journal entry by a Fisher Crane tribes person named Odena Ridgewith. Um, and it's only found, I believe, in the Pillars of Eternity Collector's book. Um, and this will give us a, a little story about what happened to one of the Fisher Cranes. We didn't notice them until a man-shaped patch of forest stepped into our path. Our guide halted and motioned for us to do the same. He gibbered out a greeting, but the bog man was studying our party, not even listening. You couldn't tell where the moss ended and the hair began, but the fellow was clearly a specimen of physical strength. His eyes settled on me, perhaps arriving at the conclusion that I that a lone female among the men was the elected leader. Then he inclined his head in the smallest gesture, and the forest around us shifted a step inward. His people had surrounded us, and he wanted me to know it. I stepped forward with my palms out in a defensive gesture. The bog man watched me with a statue's detached interest. I handed him our tattered map from the case at my side and uttered the glonfathen word that vaguely translates to Grower's Rest. Without even consulting the map, he made a smooth over gesture with his hand and said in an even tone, Gone. Buried by the green. Ah, I didn't have the heart to translate for my companions, but our guide knew enough of the tongue to figure out that our expedition was at an end. There was always the possibility that the bog man was lying for the protection of their sight. Either way, we would never see it. As the others hunkered down to discuss their next course of action, the tribal leader beckoned me closer. He said in a low tone, Letters and numbers? In other words, was I educated? I told him yes. He nodded, and two of the bogmen flanked me on either side. For our young, he said. Letters and numbers. The others may weave in peace. The rest of my group couldn't comprehend the exchange that was taking place, but I readily agreed to the proposal. After all, studying the local tribe was my reason for enlisting in the first place. If they wanted to learn something from me, so much the better. Together we vanished into the canopy of the green, leaving my former companions baffled in our trackless wake, so I began a very strange period of my life. Alright, so this next part I'm really looking forward to is these two druidic cults in the Twin Elms area. One is the Ethicnol and one is the Ovates of the Golden Grove. The Ethicnol I always find interesting. I find any extreme group or faction in a game or a story interesting because it's like, how do you maintain this extreme philosophy you have in a coherent way 
And I, and I always find that kind of uh, thought experiment interesting, especially when you can actually see it in a game. So these are two druidic orders that we are going to talk about. First is the Ethic Null. Ethic being spelled E-T-H-I-K and then N-O-L. This ancient order of druids hails from the mountains of White March, a location we've already discussed, with some of their numbers tracing their lineage back to the fallen settlements of dwarves. Uh, they can trace their lineage both in terms of physical ancestry uh, and also soul ancestry, because uh, this world runs on a form of reincarnation, so you can actually trace back what soul, what um, body your soul has been in before, if you know how. As opposed to adopting the ambition and treasure-hungry character of their brethren, the Ethic Null are fiercely spiritual. They believe in a natural order based on survival, community, and especially sacrifice. These three philosophies have a way of intersecting in bloody and controversial ways. An Ethic Null need only look around to see the spiritual world. They value the interconnected balance of nature and treat the cycle of life and death as essential to the upkeep. The trees are rooted in earth, the earth supports worms, and the worms die to feed the trees. The same perspective carries over to their daily lives. It is common for devout members of the Ethic Null to die in ritual sacrifice for the betterment of the community, using chants and rituals altogether different than what other people think of as animancy. The Ethic Null are able to disperse the soul essence of a dying individual throughout the rest of the tribe. This is done to improve the tribe's good fortune during particularly nasty seasons to improve the hunt, or to generally elevate their standing in times of decline. Under casual circumstances, they would sacrifice an animal or food-bearing plant instead. To call the live sacrifices quote-unquote willing would marginalize the complexity of their role in the society. The practice is an intrinsic part of survival and the ethic null worldview. It is also brutal and often unjust in its calculation. Members of the tribe are not always selected for sacrifice based on their willingness, but a measure of whose spiritual essence can best serve the community. On more than one occasion, that honor has extended to someone who didn't wish to die. Cultural pressures and the weight of obligation present a heavy counterbalance to any misgivings. The group has endured for centuries due in part to a precious resource they hoard, which is a magical war paint that grants the user a natural armor against arcane or physical attacks. Since the paint is only cultivated from the spiritual runoff found in ritual sacrifice, it is only employed during the battles of dire consequences. And so there we have the Ethic Null, one of the more extreme groups, I would say. Uh, if you didn't catch all of that, here's a quick summary of what they do. The Ethic Null essentially believe in this form of ritual sacrifice where they basically take the willing sacrifice of a person and then they use their soul energy as a way to bolster the rest of the community. And so when they sacrifice someone, they take the energy that's in that person and they use it to strengthen everyone else in the society. Now, most people would think that it's based on willingness, that that is what determines who's going to get sacrificed. But like they say, um, how they talk about how the trees feed from the soil, which is fed by the worms who die in it, they're more interested in trying to find people who are both willing, but also strong-souled. Because the stronger the soul the better the outcome for everybody else. But they do have to be willing. If I remember correctly, they do still have to be willing participants. And so that's the ethic null. I know there's a justification for their existence in the lore by the fact that they make this kind of like magical war paint, if you will, where the application of this war paint, which comes from the blood sacrifices, the ritual sacrifices, help uh, their warriors in battle. And so they're kind of accepted because they create this commodity, despite the fact that everyone's kind of a little off-put by them. But that's their philosophy on life, is that 
you know, your soul and your essence is not for you. It's ultimately for the greater good, which is the continued existence of reality itself or um, the people around you. You're not that important as an individual. So they recognize that, you know, you do matter enough that you have to be willing, but still, uh, you are more beneficial, sometimes dead, and that you should want to do that. Next up, and last on the list for today's episode, is Ovates of the Golden Grove. Now, the Ovates are a druidic order operating out of the Glanfathen city of Twin Elms. They consider nature a source of spiritual inspiration and wax poetic on the parallels between civilized life and the environmental patterns around them. In this, they represent something of a philosophical counterpoint to the Ethic Null. While the Ovates look to nature's cycles and patterns for insight, the Ethic Null act actively mimic them to achieve a greater sense of belonging. And you can kind of see this, the ethic null see kind of this, this is a whole circle of life mentality. It's funny, you know, I bet if you watch The Lion King and you see the circle of life, you wouldn't come to the conclusion that the ethic null have. Uh, hopefully none of our children watch those movies and think, yeah, this is, a, this is what this means, is we should actively ritually sacrifice each other for the goodness of the, the circle of life. But yet you can see the ethic null are mimicking that uh, by the way they live. The Ovates are keen naturalists, specializing in herbal remedies that can soothe or cure any malady. So, you know, yeah, the hippies in the woods that can give you uh, special potions to heal you. <laughs> Further adopting the perspective that nature can serve the greater world, they use forests and rivers as a gauge to predict greater events. Examples include droughts and storms before they happen. Although their sense of observation has led to the world leaders seeking their advice, they don't consider their skills in any way prophetic. To an Ovate, the knack for predicting the future is accessible to anyone with sharp senses and the patience to open their minds to nature. In a sense, this is actually kind of mundane to begin with. They're just saying if you pay attention to nature around you, you can see the signs and patterns and you'll know what's coming down the road, right? It's just like when people say, oh, look, all the animals are doing something weird or all the birds are flying away. There must be a storm coming. And, you know, you just, if you pay attention to nature, you can learn a lot about it. Like, in fact, there's this one cloud at least in the region that I go, uh, I'm at called like a lenticular cloud. And if I remember correctly, that's a very strong indication for like a storm coming within the next 48 hours. And it's just, it's a cloud that you can see in the sky that you wouldn't think much else about. But if you've kind of grew up as one of these ovates of the golden grove and you notice that pattern, then you can see, you're not predicting the future. You're just like, oh, there's a sign that this thing is going to happen. So yeah, it's kind of mundane. It's not really magical, but some people kind of think it as such. The Ovates and Ethic Null are competitors in the Twin Elms community. Although the practices of the Ethic Null make for some controversy, their war paint is too valuable to risk falling into outside hands. And that's it. That's all of the factions I wanted to go over today. So we went over the six tribes of the governing body for the tribes of Erglanfoth, the Ethic Null Druidic Cult of Dwarves, and the Ovates of the Golden Grove. Let's move on to how this might impact Avowed. Is an oath worth the weight? Of a crown. Now, there's no obvious connection to Avowed. The only possible way that any of these factions will come up into the game is if we are playing in the Deerwood area or in the Twin Elms area, I suppose, at a time when any of these tribes might be here. So that means the setting for Avowed would have to be on the Eastern Reach, in the Deerwood area, or in Ierglanfoth. And that's certainly a possibility. I know the leading rumor right now is that it's in the Living Lands, but as we've seen many a times with insider information it can be fairly incorrect uh, so regardless of what you may think about that i'm still 
kind of squinting skeptically at that information. I do kind of hope it is living lands personally, but one thing though is the Keepers of the Stone tribe from the six tribes that I mentioned. It was the first faction I mentioned on today's episode. They did hail from somewhere else before, and they did say that they had actually been in contact with the Ingwithans at one point in time, which means that tribe spans a huge amount of time, and since they also came across the seas to the Eastern Reach, that means they've also traveled across a massive amount of space. And therefore, there's a chance that you could actually run into the Keepers of the Stone. I don't know exactly what their tribe would look like, you know, many, many, many generations ago, or further generations down the line, who knows, when a vow will be taking place, of course, but there's a chance we could run into that tribe if it's in the past, uh, any of these tribes if it's in the future. That's everything we have for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, well, if you didn't enjoy it, thanks for listening to the whole thing anyways. Um, I'd like you to tell me what you didn't like about it. Uh, But if you did enjoy it, I'd still like to hear what you liked about it. So you can send me an email, worldofaora at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at worldofaora. As well, if you aren't aware, I have been putting up episodes of a critical path let's play for pillars of eternity it's just up on youtube on my channel gingerino 42 for those who are interested in the story and the world of aora as seen in pillars of eternity one but you're not into the game yourself necessarily it's a short let's play it's only going to be 17 episodes in total it's a critical path one i do voices for everything and that kind of stuff so if you're into a short let's play that just showcases the world and the story of the first game then feel free to check it out or pass along to someone else who might like it. Other than that, um, not really anything to go over. Um, I've been playing Elden Ring lately, not that that matters to anybody, but I finally played a Friends software game, and I, I get it now. You know, I just, I get it now. Uh, I've been playing that since August, so it's going to be, it's going to be a long one. It's going to be a long one. That's been me. But yeah, what have you guys been playing? Um, and what faction in today's episode did you like to hear about the most or which one did you identify with the most any insights or questions to ask about those factions or about the game itself or any corrections to offer me again send me an email i'd love to get these conversations going world of aura at gmail.com or call me out on twitter at world of aura i would love to hear from you guys thank you that's been everything for today i'm your host eric aka gingerino and i'll see you guys next time